All right. Hey, thank you so much, worship team, Greg and company, for leading us every week. Uh, we have so many volunteers that we're so grateful for. So thank you guys so much for what you do. Well, you have found us in uh, part five of a five-part series called Tattered Life and Timeless Legacy. This is really, uh, if you've been joining us at all for this series, uh, uh, you know already, this is a story of King David in the Old Testament. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, this is still the story of King David in the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, in week one, we saw with David that he was chosen by God, not because of his gifts or skill set, but because of who God is in choosing. And we made this statement that life is best measured by the immeasurables, not just on what we see others value in, but what God sees their value to be. Week number two, we covered maybe one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible, David versus Goliath. Bingo. David versus Goliath. And we asked the question there, what threatens to make little of your faith daily, daily, daily? What continues to come and threaten to make little of your faith? And David stepped into that great moment and did extremely well in that moment. The third week, we looked at David versus Saul in a way. This story is a little bit different. And really, we looked at the temptation to grab try to grab control of the future of life and manipulate the future toward our benefit. And the feeling that we regularly have of being out of control and when an opportunity seems to come that we can control the future, we want to grab sometimes in a way that we should not. And David, we began to see the first chink in his armor. He grabbed and tried to manipulate something that wasn't for him to take yet, and that was a real problem. And then last week, we looked at David versus his biggest enemy and David versus himself and the struggle in his own life that he ended up falling into sin with Bathsheba, this woman that he had committed an affair with, and then he had her husband murdered, and things went downhill from there pretty badly. And this is why we tell the story of David in this way, tattered life, timeless legacy, because David's life is tattered. It's full of sin and full of great failure. And yet, he's a man of great character whom we will be glad to name our children after. Like when we name our, our son David, it's not because we're thinking of the guy who slept with Bathsheba. Like we're naming him David because we think it has a great strength and reputation to it. And it's amazing how someone who could fall into such deep failure ends up with a timeless legacy. And what's the deal? How can you go through such deep personal moral failure and end up with a legacy for generations, generations and generations? People name their sons after you. What's the deal? And we said, ultimately, David is a man of great sin and great character, but he serves a God of even greater grace. And that it was the grace of God pulling things together into his life that drew out this great character in his life. Now, this morning in our last panel in looking at David, we're going to be looking at David in a different way. Not as the king, but David as dad. David is dad. David is the father. Now, many of you here this morning, or maybe if you're listening online later, you're not a dad or you're not a father. I get that. But I want to tell you that the principles from this morning are applicable to anyone who ever influences people of the next generation to come. So if you ever are in a situation where you have an opportunity to influence children coming behind you, this message is for you. If you never have an opportunity to influence children in the next generation, this is not for you. You're welcome to check out. That pretty much should cover all of us who have an opportunity to influence people. David, we're going to look at uniquely as a father. So, if you will, while I'm talking now, if you can go ahead and grab your Bible, we're going to turn to a book, um, a new book for us, First Kings. It's in the Old Testament, about the 11th book into your Old Testament. It's right after Second Samuel. You can look in the table of contents. First Kings chapter 1 is, is fine to just park it at the beginning of First Kings. Here's what we're going to do. As you drive your Bible up to First uh, Kings, we're going to put that baby in park when you find First Kings. 
we're going to get out of the car and walk around the block a little bit and look at David's life, and then we're going to come back to where you are in about 15, 20 minutes, and we'll, we'll pick right up in 1 Kings there. But before I get there, I want to tell you the story of David and three of his sons. And then we're going to get to the story of a fourth son and how he interacted with him. But we want to get, get out of the car here at 1 Kings, walk around the block, come back, and see what we've learned in the process. So the story of David, a very interesting man uh, as a father and very, um, very passive, distant father. He had a, a son, and his one son was named Amnon, okay? Now, if you know the story of David, you know that he actually ended up with a lot of wives and concubines, which God did not want him to have. In Deuteronomy 17, it says that the king should not multiply wives, riches, or horses for battle, but David did multiply wives. He had a lot of wives, a lot of women, therefore a lot of children. And he didn't do a great job of managing his kids. He just simply did not do a great job as a father from what we see as the bulk of the witness in the Bible. So he has this son named Amnon, kind of a funny name. Now, here's, this, is, this gets a little... Um, just gonna, it gets a little raunchy here in the Old Testament. So I'm going to be careful how we go through this, but it's a little little off. So if you need motivation to read your Bible, okay, here we go. First Kings, the story of his children, Second Samuel. It's, it's tough stuff to read. Now here's Amnon. He falls in love with his stepsister, Tamar. And Amnon is trying to figure out how to get this woman because after all, that's what David did, right? He just got women, so I guess I can get women too. Does it matter if she's my stepsister? So Amnon, because he's like in line to the throne, he gets a, a consultant, basically an advisor given to him. Think now of a PR person who's given to a, a leader to make sure that the, the, the leader doesn't make a fool of himself. In a way, that's what happens with Amnon. He has an advisor assigned to him and he essentially tells the advisor, hey, I really like her. What should I do? She's my stepsister. And the advisor says, here's what you do, Amnon. You pretend to be sick, all right? You get in bed, and then you request, when the king asks why you're down and you're not performing your normal duties, he'll come to see you, and you will request to the king, please allow Tamar, my sister, to come in here and make bread in front of me and feed it to me, and I will, you know, get better as a result of that, all right? He's like, sounds like a plan, and so that's what he does. And so David comes in to check on him, and he says, hey, hey, dad, can you please have Tamar come in here, make some bread in front of me, and I will uh, eat it from her, and she'll help me get you know, nursed back to health. David thinks this is a good idea, and so he calls for Tamar. Tamar comes in with her help, not alone, comes in with her help, makes his bread. This isn't like a five-minute deal. Like, this takes a while right, to, to knead the dough is what we're talking about. Okay, not just like turn the oven on to 350 for preheat. I mean, this is kneading the dough, all right? And, to, and Amnon is there in bed waiting for this moment, and finally... The bread is ready, and Tamar is going to serve it to him. And uh, he says, hey, no, please send everybody out of the room. And so everyone goes out of the room, and Tamar comes over to hand the bread to him, and he grabs her by the hand. And she knows what's going to happen. She says, what you're about to do is not good. Please ask the king, and he will certainly give you my hand in marriage. And, and Amnon says, no. Like, I want you now. And he violates her in that moment. And then here's what happens after that. Here's what we read in 1 Kings. Um, excuse me, here's what we read here, that Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. After this act is over, all of a sudden, all the love and the passion that he felt for her was gone, and it was replaced with hatred. I can't believe what you've done. Here's the problem for Tamar. She's damaged goods now. She has damaged goods. Her life, in terms of getting married, having a family, is pretty much over because of Amnon. Now here's where the struggle. Um, Tamar has a brother named Absalom, who's also, you know, David's son, all right? So Absalom says to Tamar, you come live with me. Stay in my place. 
and I'll take care of things. So Absalom, as you can imagine, is incensed with Amnon. He is mad. So here's what the Bible tells us. For, for two years, for two years, they don't talk. Now, sometimes we do that with people that we are friends with or used to be business partners with, and we hope not to run into them in the grocery store, okay? Right? That's one thing. But can you imagine what Thanksgiving would have been like? Can you imagine what family gatherings would have been like with Absalom and Amnon not speaking to one another for two years? You know what the Bible recounts of David's actions after Amnon rapes Tamar? It says David was angry. You know what action it records that David did? Nothing. He just gets mad. He gets mad. He gets angry. And we see that he does nothing. Now, if we're honest, dads, this is a struggle, isn't it? It's not hard to get angry at injustice, but it's hard to actually do something about it. It's not hard to see what's wrong, but it's hard to actually lead into those moments that are very, very difficult. And so for two years, David as a father does nothing, does nothing to fix a situation at home. He does nothing with Absalom's, Absalom's anger with Amnon. He does nothing with, with Amnon in terms of discipline or any kind of fixing or healing in this moment. We see nothing happening there. And if we're honest, dads, isn't this the struggle that's greater than an external struggle. The internal struggle of managing the home and leading in the home with heart issues is a whole lot more difficult to manage than simply providing a paycheck for or a roof over the heads or food for our children and our families, right? The external struggles are one thing, but the internal struggles are a whole other matter. So for two years, Absalom and, and Amnon not getting along, not talking, David not involved in anything that we can see biblically. And Absalom begins to get more and more angry. And he comes up with a plan. So he finally goes to his, his dad, David, and he says, hey dad, uh, it's sheep shearing season. Right? Now evidently at sheep shearing season you have a party to celebrate that moment or that time when it's over. He says, please allow all of our, my, my brothers to come to this event that I'm going to host. We want to have a big party. We're going to have a, a festival and I'd like to host everybody. And David says, it's not necessary for everybody to go to that. We basically can't afford to send everybody there. And Absalom says, no worries. Why don't you just send Amnon? David's like, that's a good idea. And that's what he does. And he sends Amnon to this party. Now, Absalom's plan is simple. He wanted this all along. His plan, get Amnon drunk, and then he tells his servants, when Absalom is drunk, kill him. Don't be afraid. I've given you the orders. Kill him. And that's what he does. Absalom kills his brother. And then after he kills his brother, he goes to his grandpa's house. Why not, right? What are you going to do after you kill your brother? Instead of going back to dad, you go and flee to your father-in-law's, or your dad's father-in-law's house. So for two years, Absalom then lives with his grandpa. And he has no contact with home base with David anymore. And this going well? Why was a grandpa would you allow Absalom to do this, right? I mean, let's talk about dysfunction going from generation to generation to generation, being silent and passive and not involved. After a couple years, David allows Absalom to come back. And in the coming back to Jerusalem, Absalom begins to, um, to figure out a way where he's going to take over basically a coup attempt in the nation of Israel. Now, he's David's son, and he says, you know, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to intercept people as they're coming into the gate, into the king's gate. And he does that. As people are coming into the city of Jerusalem and coming to see the king, he says, you know what? As you're coming here, let me, let me just talk to you. Let me bend your ear a little bit. Wouldn't it be great if we had a king who is a king of great justice, who is wise? Why don't you just go ahead and, and tell me your struggle right now, and, and I'll judge for you. I'll tell you what you should do. 
And over time, over time, over time, people began to give their heart to Absalom. And he began to win the hearts of the people by intercepting him at the city gate. And then he began to develop a plan for overtaking the throne. In fact, he, he actually moved into the point where he actually began to sleep with some of David's own wives on the rooftop of the palace. Amazing stories that happened. And here's what happened ultimately with Absalom. At one point, he got, became so powerful that David realized that the hearts of the people had turned to Absalom and away from him. And now here's King David, this mighty ruler who took down um, Goliath, who managed the Philistines, who for 40 years had an impeccable record as a, a leader and a ruler. A great man of character. And here's what David ultimately says at a, a key point in his time with Absalom. He says this out of fear. He says, come, he says to his servants, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. Here's the mighty King David. Guys, come on, we have got to leave. Absalom has become so powerful, he's going to overtake the whole city. And so he, he does, begins to move that direction. And there's this conflict, and ultimately Absalom is killed by none other than Joab. Joab is the one who actually received the orders from David to put Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, on the front line to die now Joab re-enters the narrative, re-enters the story, and he's the one who kills Absalom. Upon hearing that news, David goes to his, basically the foot of his bed, and he begins to weep and weep and weep over his son Absalom, who died in this process. Now, as the years go on, David has another son, and this, this son, another A named Adonijah, he begins to get a little anxious about being at home with his father. And if you ever had boys who are growing up and moving out of the home, you know, at some point their, their manhood needs to be expressed. They need to get out and be their own person. Adonijah decides that he's going to become the next king because no one else is becoming king. And Adonijah says to all of his brothers, he says, you know what? Why don't we come and, and go ahead and make me king? Let's have a big party for me to be king. And we're going to take a big party out into the, out away from Jerusalem. We're going to sacrifice 50 cattle, 50 sheep. We're going we're gonna to have this big event to coronate me as king. Now, here's the problem with, with Adonijah, and here's the problem with David. David, his son now, is planning to be king and throwing this massive party, and David doesn't know about it. Have you ever been blindsided by something your kids have done? You ever been surprised to find out that they actually are looking at that, or listening to that, or watching that, or going there? You ever been surprised by that? You ever been surprised at this level? Wait, they're trying to take over the presidency of the United States? Wait, they're having, what? They're doing a what? They're, what? Like, you talk about someone who's disconnected, and here's what the Bible tells us about David's involvement with Adonijah. He says this, that his father, in 1 Kings 1, his father David, Adonijah's father David, had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? That's the narrative. That's the story. The reason Adonijah behaves the way that he does is because his father had never, quote-unquote, interfered with him and asked him, why do you do the things that you are doing? In other words, because there was a passive father, there was no direction given to Adonijah to say, you know what, this isn't a good idea. Like, you should think about this before you do it. David was so removed and so passive that Adonijah just made up his own way of doing things. You talk about being disconnected as a parent. In fact, it was so bad for David that that Nathan the prophet had to tell Bathsheba, hey Bathsheba, can you go tell your husband that there's a party going on and that someone else is going to be king soon? And David is like, whoa, hey, how'd that happen? Like, you know, maybe 
Maybe you should ask your kids somewhere along the line, what's going on? What are you watching? What are you listening to? What are you reading? What are you thinking? What are you doing? Maybe, I don't know, it might seem like a good idea to actually provide guidance as a dad to your children. I don't, seems like a smart idea. You know? I don't know, David, what do you think? So here's, here's the story of David. Three of his sons, three of his sons, who all, we can call it self-destructed, who are all dysfunctional, and he is the man of the house doing almost nothing for it at all. And it's amazing to me, and if we're honest, I think we can all relate to the struggles of what David is dealing with. It is hard work to step into and intentionally care for and lead children in the next generation. It is difficult, difficult work. It is hard work and it is very, very hard. Now, here's the good news, though. Here's the good news. The David story doesn't end here. With this walk around the block that we have done, we've now circled back to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 1 is where this text is. If you still have your Bible there to 1 Kings, let's take you just to chapter 2. I want to read the first three verses of chapter 2. Because a fourth son enters the picture. This son, many of you know about, this son is Solomon. As we get back to 1 Kings chapter 2, we're at the end of David's life. And in this point in the story, David realizes that he is going to die and that the end has come. And here's this amazing, amazing window into the life of David that to me is such a gift to us um, as parents, such a gift to us as people who influence the next generation, even if you're not a parent yet. This is such a gift to us to see what David does. And he does this, by the way, in the middle of his own failures. He does this after years and years and years and years of the plane nosediving toward the ground. And before it crashes into the ground, he pulls, he pulls up a little bit and he saves essentially his fatherhood from sure disaster with this move in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Check out what is going on there in, uh, in chapter 2. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, show yourself a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements, as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. We're going to stop it right there. Now you may read that and you may hear that and you think, okay, what's the gift? What's the big deal? What just happened? Here's the big deal. All of a sudden, David is active. For the first time in all of his parenthood that we see in the Old Testament, David has actively decided, I'm going to step into my son's life, and even though I'm at the end of my life, and maybe I'm doing this out of regret that I didn't do this with Adonijah, I didn't do this with Absalom, I didn't do it with Amnon, I didn't do it with anybody else, with Solomon. I'm going to step in and I'm going to use my words to create a reality for Solomon that he can walk in. Some of you may know, maybe this happened to you as well. We have, uh, we, have, we have children, I think many of you know that. Many years ago when we took one of our children to uh, the doctor for a well visit checkup, okay? Which means there's nothing wrong with your child. We just want to charge money for you to come in and see them every now and then, okay? So we went in for a well visit checkup with one of our children, and they were maybe oh, six or nine months old, something very, very young. And uh, at the end of the visit, the doctor said to my wife, Jen, they said, um, hey, things are going well. Uh, we talked about some, some issues we were having uh, just with trying to control some you know, infant or toddler-type behavior in the house. And they said, okay, well, encourage them. Encourage them to use their words. 
I'm like, okay, they have two words right now, right? We got, we got ball, we got mama, okay? Like, how much is that going to cover, okay? I mean, so, okay, let's talk about this. You have a, we have an issue of selfishness, and you're fighting for that toy. Hey, which do you think covers that issue? Is that ball or mama? Because that's the scope of our vocabulary right now, okay? Which words do you want them to use? They don't have any words right now. Now, it's a good thing I wasn't there in the doctor's office, because that's probably what I would have said. Their point was... Hey, your child needs to learn to verbalize the things that are going on in their heart. Teach them to use their words. David, all of a sudden, used his words. And in that, he created a reality for Solomon to walk in. He gave him a challenge, and he gave him a plan, and he gave him a reason. He gave him a challenge. Be strong. Be a man. That's just something to shoot for, Solomon. Don't be like your brothers. Come on. Be strong. Be a man. And doesn't leave him there with a challenge. Then he moves into the plan to walk with God. Obey his commandments. Do the things that a strong man does. Why? So that, he finishes, so that it may go well with you and God may prosper you. He gives him an incredible gift. And he creates a reality. Not unlike the video we watched at the very beginning of this service. You got this. When the doubt creeps into the mind of the child going down the slide, on the skateboard, getting married, driving away to college, and they hear again the words of an influential father-type figure, it creates a reality in which they feel confidence to walk into the next phase of their life. And this is what David is giving this gift to, of, to Solomon. He's saying to him, he's using the words that God has put in his mind and his heart, and he's actually stepping in to speak them. So this morning, this is not profound. In fact, this is so simple, it's almost silly how simple it is. It's this simple idea that using our words, and let me put it this way, that it's a, it's a gift to the next generation to use your words to create reality. Dads in particular, but not only dads, but anyone who is a father-type influential figure. It is an absolute gift to your children when they hear from you, here's who you are, here's who God is, here's what you can do to step into reality in your life. And when that is absent, it is a great loss for a child who doesn't know where to go, is unclear what the boundaries are, is unclear what the limits are, and will just poke around and prod around to try to find some way through their life. It is an absolute gift to use words to create reality for our children. Now, let me say this as well. What you say in two minutes can last two generations or more. You know this is true, right? You know this is true. What you say in two minutes can last two generations. This is why when you say something you know you shouldn't in anger, you realize, man, that I may not be able to undo. That might have lasting consequences. This is why you can probably even remember now something that your dad or mom said when they were angry in your home and they, they, they lashed out at you. You remember those moments as they have deep emotional impact in you. This is why you can remember that grandpa loses his temper here or grandma does this. Things that we say in just the moments last for generations. Now, if it's true in the negative, imagine what, it can, be, what can be said of the positive. Imagine what could, what could happen 
as you step into your parenting, as you step into your influence, and you decide, I'm going to step into this next generation. I'm going to use the words that God has given me. I see something in this child. I see something here. And I'm going to tell them what I see. They don't believe in themselves yet. They don't even know who God is. They don't even know what faith is like. And I'm going to help orient them to faith by simply using my words to create reality for them, like David did. Whether that's at bedtime, whether that's at dinner time, whether that's on the drive to an activity or an event, whether that's here in a Sunday school environment or something else, the impact that a male voice can have is tremendous. A father-type figure voice on the life of a child is tremendous. Not only for men, certainly for women as well, but today is Father's Day, particularly for men, particularly for dads. We have a great, great opportunity. What you say in two minutes, you know this is true, can last for two generations or more. Now, I want to ask you this question as well. Because some of you are sitting here thinking, this is great for little kids, this is great for young kids who need encouragement, and need oriented, but my kids are grown, you know, and they are, they're all set in life, and they have what they need, and that's kind of past me and all that. Some of you are also sitting here and thinking, that would have been nice to hear like 20 years ago. You know, I really wish, you know, I would have heard that a while ago. Some of you also, I think, if you're honest, have things in your mind about your children or about people who are around you that you have influence over that you have thought but haven't said. Some of us men, in particular, we struggle to know how to use our words if we're just honest. So it's hard to put our thoughts into, into words. Um, women don't struggle with that as much. Certainly men, we do. And you know, It's been said that women can think and talk about their feelings at the same time, and men have to think about their feelings before we can actually say them. And generally, I think that's true, but I don't know because I don't have feelings at the same time that I have thoughts, so it's hard for me to know. But it is more of a challenge for us as men to be able to put our thoughts into words. And which is why it makes it all the more valuable when we do. Which is why it's all the more impressive upon our children when they hear from dad, not just from mom, but they hear from dad, I am so proud of what you are becoming. And as you continue to follow the Lord and obey his commandments, he's going to do an amazing thing in your life. If you want success in this life, here's what this looks like. Obey God and his commands. I love what you're being... I mean, any of these statements that affirm the value and identity of our child and point them toward faith in our God and help them understand what obedience looks like. Coming from Dad, amazing, amazing two minutes, if even 20 seconds of truth to our children. Now, with that all being said, some of you kind of were living with regrets. Living with, you know, I wish I would have, I wish I would have, I wish I would have. Let me just ask this question. If you had the courage, what would you want to say even now? If you had the courage and you look back on your parenting, you look back on the opportunities that you had, and you think, man, I wish I would have known that. I wish I would have thought about the importance of my words as a father figure. Man, it, the story's not over, right? I mean, you're still breathing. But there's still opportunity. It's not over. It's just not over. I know it might be harder, but come on, it's not over. If you could, what would you say to your kids? If you, had, if you had all the courage in the world and you could just forget some of your past history and you could forget for a moment your past fights and arguments and you could forget the personal struggle that you think may come if you just take a moment with your child. If you could forget all that and you had the courage. See, it took David unto his deathbed to begin to do the right thing. On his deathbed, finally he did that. I Man, it doesn't need to take that long. If you had the courage, what would you say to your children? What would you say to the 
the children around you who you have influence over, if you had the courage to do it, how would you help them see who they are in light of who God is? It's an incredible, incredible gift to give. This is the reality that we know as men, that David's life is, is tattered and broken. I mean, we talk about tattered life and timeless legacy. And as men, we know how broken we are, even though we try to put on an image of great strength and togetherness. And here's the thing with us as fathers, we know that our children know how broken we are because they see us at home. They see our limitations, our weaknesses, our impatience, our struggle, our short fuses or whatever. They see all that, and our wives do too. I mean, we, are, we are broken people. But this is the story of David. His life was absolutely broken. I mean, look at what a terrible father he was to Amnon and to, to Adonijah and to Absalom. He was passive. He was removed. He didn't even say anything when Adonijah began to be king. He's like, and the Bible records there, as you saw up here on the screen, that hey, he didn't even interfere with me. He didn't even ask him, why do you behave in the way that you do? He was completely removed. And he failed and failed and failed and failed and failed. And then he succeeded with Solomon. Then he stepped into this with Solomon. And this is a story of David, and it's a story of life. Tattered life. Timeless legacy. We're full of failures. We're full of mistakes along the way. But our past failures should not remove or strip our future courage from us. Okay? Our past failures should not strip away and remove future courage to do the right thing. It just can't do that. The story of David is also the story of Jesus, by the way. It's amazing to me is that when Jesus came to the earth and when, when God was creating life before time even began, that he decided this, that Jesus came through David's line. He decided that of all the men on the earth, I want the world to know that I'm going to send the Messiah through the line of David, through this man, this man of great sin, who's a record of great pastorness as a father, but I'm going to honor this man's line by sending the Messiah through his line. So if you want to sit and wallow in your failure and your passivity and your lack of ownership or leadership as a man, you can do that if you want to. But God didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that, and David didn't do that. Yep, we failed. Yep, we're tattered. Yep, we're not able to put our words together well. Yep, we wish we could do better. Yep, we don't step up all the time we should. Yep, 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 yep. But at the end of the day, God decided, through this man, I'm going to save the world. And I'm going to send Jesus to be kind of like a, a kind of David, if you will. Someone like David, who in a way will be the king that David wasn't. Who will be the perfect man to save the world. It's amazing to me that in the middle of all of David's sin and failure, God said, this is the man whose line will end up with the Messiah. You want encouragement? You want hope for the failure you might feel as a parent? David's life is that story of great grace that God said, I don't care if you failed. Yep, you're passive. Yep, your son murdered your other son. Yep, you had incest in your family. Yep, you slept with the woman. Yep, yep, failed, 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 failed. Yep, all right. Now through you, I'm going to save the world. It's a story of the gospel. In the middle of our tattered life, the timeless legacy is not us, but it is the grace of God through Jesus Christ that has come to us. And this is a story of David, a man of great failure and a God of great grace who said, through this man, I'm going to save the world. I'm going to save the world. This morning as we gather together and finish this series, we have a chance to share in communion together. And it's a perfect lead out from the story of David. Because the story of David leads right out into the cross. It leads right out into Jesus. It leads out into Jesus who is the perfect David, who is a man who ruled, if you will, as the king, who is perfect and not flawed in the line of David 
one who will rule rightly and justly without all of these flaws. And this morning, as we get ready to take communion, our story and what we believe about the gospel, we believe about Jesus here at Grace Point, is that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. That He, he alone saves mankind from our sin. That we are like David in that we are deeply flawed and we also have moments of great character, which we do some good things. But at the end of the day, we're lost to ourselves and lost to our sin. That we need a Savior. And that God, through His providence and grace, sent Jesus to be that Savior in the line of David to save us from our sins. And that the only way we can experience salvation is not by trying to be people of good character. Because that will not work. Even the best of us can't do that. The only way we receive salvation is by placing our trust and believing in Jesus as our sacrifice, as our atonement for our sin. So we have the opportunity to celebrate that in the taking of communion, which is one of the two sacraments of the church that we still uh, honor and recognize and observe today. In the breaking of the bread, as we call it, we're representing to one another the broken body of Jesus on the cross in sharing the bread among us here. And then in the taking of the cup, we're representing the, the blood that was spilled on the cross for us. And in all of that, we're recognizing this is the great grace of God to take a tattered life and pull it together. Not that David could look better or you could look better or I could look better. It's not about us becoming better because we believed in Jesus. It's about His glory and His grace being made known. And that's the timeless legacy. Not just of David, but of the great grace of God. And so if you're here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've heard this before, but you've never quite said, you know what, that's for me. Why not make this morning that morning? Why not say, you know what, I need to make that move. Maybe you're here this morning and you've heard it and you're like, I want to at least talk more about this with somebody. Let's make that move this morning. And maybe you're here this morning and you already are a believer in Jesus Christ. And your next move is, you know what? I need to step into, I need to step into these opportunities to shape the next generation for their faith and their identity and what is true and give to them a gift of helping them understand who they are, and how to follow God through all the hardship that will come. So, tattered life, timeless legacy, chance for us to share in communion together. Um, as I pray here to wrap up, I'm going to go ahead and invite the communion ushers and the worship team to come up. And as we pray, um, I'm going to have you just take a moment in you, the quietness of your own heart to begin to think and begin to respond, God, what is it that you want me to do? And then I will wrap us up to close. So will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be in the life of David and to see in a man both his sin and his character and your grace. To see the flaws and to see your leading and to recognize that we find ourselves here in the same situation. As people who want to do well, we want to succeed, we want to be honorable, we want to have a good image, we want to be known as hard workers and fun people to be around and have a good reputation in our communities, and we, we get that. But yet we also deep inside have this gnawing away at us, this own self-awareness of our own inadequacies and our own um, hollowness of soul sometimes that just cannot be filled, even by our own best effort. So Father, for, for those this morning who are close to placing their faith in you, who have been maybe even in church for a little while and in some way thought that maybe just being present in church will somehow be enough. 
we say this morning that making that move from simply attending a service to placing personal faith in Jesus Christ is the next step to move in terms of salvation and being saved from our sin. For those this morning who are in that boat, I pray for courage to take that step and to share that with someone who has brought them or a good friend or even to share it with one of the leaders here at the church. For those of us, Father, who are in the position where we just are not sure, I pray that you give us courage to take the next step no matter what that will be. I thank you, Father, for your great grace. I thank you for the chance that we have to celebrate and to share in communion together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.